appreciate the uh, birthday wishes. Thank you for that. You kind of stole my thunder a little bit, uh, Scott. I was hoping to, uh, to actually talk about that now. So actually, this won't be a surprise to you when I, uh, when I say that on Sunday, May 31st, 1992, it was a Sunday, at 6.17 p.m. in a hospital in Eastridge, Tennessee, Eddie and, Eddie and Gloria Murphy celebrated the arrival of new life in their family. Healthy, eight-pound, one-ounce baby boy named Logan Ryan. Yes, tomorrow is my birthday. And when I was a young boy, uh, the birthdays were a big deal, like I think it was for most of us. And like most of us, as I've grown older, I think the excitement and the hype has worn off over time. Uh, it's not so much about the gifts and the parties anymore, so much as about reflecting on God's sustaining grace throughout the years. He has been so very good to me. So good, in fact, that he's given me more than one day to celebrate as a birthday. You see, on another Sunday, five years, two months, and 24 days after I was born in that hospital in Eastridge, I was born again. I was in a worship service at East Cleveland Baptist Church listening to the preaching of Pastor Marvin Fowler when I realized that I was dead in my sins, destined for hell, and in desperate need of a Savior. So each year I celebrate these two birthdays. I have them both marked on my calendar, in fact. But as more time has passed, I'll tell you, the second birthday has become sweeter to me than the first. I've grown much fonder of that second date in August than my birthday in May. You see, the first birth date represents a natural event. It's a good thing, right, to be born, to celebrate new life. But the second date represents... An event that is supernatural. It is better than good. It is without a doubt the most important day of my life. It's more important than my natural birthday. It's more important than the day I met Michelle or the day that we were married or the day I graduated college or seminary or the days that both of our children were born. As special as those days are, my second birthday was more special. You see, on August 24th, 1997, God performed a miracle. God created new life within me. He gave me a new heart. He gave me a new mind. He gave me his very spirit. That's an amazing, amazing thing to celebrate. So today's sermon is titled, You Must Be Born Again. And our text is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. The sermon can be summarized as this. If you want to experience eternal life in God's kingdom, you must be born again. So open your Bibles with me now to John 
chapter 3, verses 1 through 21 as we read our text today. Gospel of John, chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And of course we all know these next few verses by heart, it seems. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in the name, who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word. It is alive, it is powerful, it is active. It's more relevant than ever, even though it's ancient. While I will spend some time explaining the background of this passage, my goal today is not merely to teach you something that you don't know. Rather, my goal is to allow God to speak clearly into your life through his word. And I am convinced that he is speaking to each of us today. May we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us through the Word today. 
To help us hear well, I'm going to show you a, a brief roadmap of where we're going. First, a brief explanation of the background of the text. And then second, we'll see the following from Jesus' words to Nicodemus. Our need for new birth, followed by the source of new birth, the evidence of the new birth, and concluding with the final outcome, the hope of the new birth. So first, the explanation of the text. In chapter 3, verse 1, we are encountering a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He's called a ruler of the Jews. Some people believe that he was a a leading uh, ruler, maybe in the, the Sanhedrin. But in any case... He's a prominent figure in the Jewish community. So, who is Nicodemus? Well, Scripture, there's not very many references to Nicodemus in Scripture. In fact, I think they're all in John, and there's only three. This is the first. Physically, we believe him to be an older man. Um, Not that that matters a whole lot, but he does reference uh, when Jesus says, you must be born again, or one must be born again. How does Nicodemus respond. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? And then, of course, Jesus responds later, and he says, you know, do not marvel when I say to you. And so we, we it's by at least implication, he's an older uh, Jewish man, ruler of the people, and that would actually comport well with his age being older. He's a, an established leader in the Jewish community. Sociologically, that's who he is, right? Uh, he's a leading figure in this community. Theologically, a Pharisee. Um, we won't unpack that right now, but you can search the scriptures and you'll find the Pharisees were very devout people, right? Uh, for all the ways that we can um, really give them a bad a bad rap, and Jesus gets into into some arguments with the Pharisees in scripture. They really cared deeply, and they were really devout. Um, so we can at least say that about them. But biblically, when we look at the the person, narratively, who is this person, Nicodemus? Um, It's fascinating, actually. We're first uh, encountering him in chapter 3 as this inquisitive seeker. He's coming to um, Jesus at night, and we might ask why. Why at night? Well, some would propose that he's wanting the cover of darkness for secrecy. Maybe he doesn't want to be seen associating with this radical teacher, this new rabbi that's shown up on the scene. But he's not exactly trying to condemn Jesus. At least it seems that way, because when we see him show up in Scripture again, we're clued into a little different detail. So look with me a few pages further if you would. In John chapter 7, starting with verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? So the Pharisees had sent these uh, people to, to bring in Jesus And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. So the Jewish leaders are trying to arrest Jesus. They send these officials, these 
guards to arrest Jesus, and the guards say, sorry, we didn't arrest him. We got so caught up in listening to him speak because no one speaks like him. It's marvelous, isn't it? Um, They went to arrest him, and you think, well, what? You read the text, and why didn't he arrest them? (laughs) No one speaks like this man. But here's the clue about Nicodemus. Listen to this. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now watch this. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, the Pharisees, said to them, the Pharisees, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they, the Pharisees, replied to Nicodemus, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So before we're quick to to peg Nicodemus as just one of the other Pharisees in Scripture, it's important that we see where the Gospel of John takes us with this person. And that's not the final reference to Nicodemus. Turn further in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 19. Starting in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, most of us have heard that name before, was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. We, I think most of us are familiar with this detail, but listen to this. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Nicodemus, along with a secret follower of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, is there to bind, prepare the body of Christ and lay it in the tomb. I want to be clear that this isn't just another Pharisee. This is someone who has a a bigger, broader personage in Scripture, a trajectory, as it were. And yet, we're told again and again that he's he's coming in darkness. So what is this detail about? Why does it matter that he comes by night? We've already said practically, right, he might be kind of like Joseph of Arimathea in secret, trying to avoid, uh, you know, the condemnation of his fellow Pharisees, maybe. But narratively, it's interesting, too, that he's coming in the darkness of his unregenerate status. We, we read at the end that it talks about those who come to the light and those who stay in darkness because their works were evil. So there's something here to be said that Nicodemus still isn't born again, at least in John 3. He is unregenerate, and therefore he is in darkness. 
And him coming to Jesus in darkness is in some way indicative of this status. He lacks understanding. He lacks belief of who Jesus is. So what does Nicodemus say? First, he calls Jesus rabbi. He calls him a teacher, a fellow teacher, Nicodemus himself being a rabbi. We shouldn't gloss over that fact. That's a significant detail coming from a leader of the Jews. He says, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. So he recognizes something of God's authority in Jesus, something of his truth. And he says, in fact, no one could perform signs that you are doing if God were not with him. So he recognizes something true about Jesus, and he is on to something. And maybe even implied here is this kind of message. We know that you're a teacher, that God has sent, and that God is uniquely present with you to enable you to perform these signs, but are you more? He doesn't ask that, of course. That's not what we, what we see. But it's almost implied that he's, okay, what's your point, Nicodemus? What are you trying to accomplish? Well, then we look at Jesus' response, and I'll the bulk of our sermon today will be from Jesus' response, so I won't steal too much. But just in summary, Jesus says you must be born again. One must be born from above or from uh, or again. That word in the Greek could be taken to be a second time or it could be taken from above. Uh, both of those themes are, are prominent in Scripture. Nicodemus takes it as again because he references the natural birth. And that's how a lot of our tra- translations are rendered as well. But Nicodemus has an incredulous response to this, right? What? How can this be? How could someone be born again? And then Jesus reiterates again, truly, truly, I say to you, right? One must be born of water and of spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Now, he's moved from see the kingdom of God to enter the kingdom of God. And then he talks about flesh is from flesh and spirit is spirit. And he says, don't marvel that I say to you that you all, He uses the plural here. He he switches from to you, Nicodemus. Don't marvel when I say to you, Nicodemus, that, as we say in the South, that y'all, right, that y'all must be born again. You all must be born again. Speaking of who? The Jewish people. And then he goes on with the wind analogy, and he talks about this the spirit being like the wind that blows where it, where it pleases. And of course, if you're familiar with Bible language in any small way, you'll, you'll recognize, and you can even figure this out from English, right? Inspiration or respiratory, right? Spirit and breath are the same words in Greek and in Hebrew. Uh, the spirit of God is his very breath. And so as the wind blows... So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And then Jesus, of course, questions his lack of understanding. He talks about him knowing with the Father, we speak. Notice that language. We speak in verse 
11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. And Jesus is using the plural there, and that's maybe a reference back to, again, a teacher come from God, one who, with whom God is present. The plurals there um, are, again, attesting to, yes, maybe John the Baptist or something, but ultimately the Father. And y'all don't receive the testimony. And if you understand how the testimony works, right, it needs to be attested by more than one person, which is what we see later on in the gospel when Jesus is defending his testimony, and he's saying, I'm speaking not only my own words, but from the Father, right? So we speak, I and the Father are one, I and the Father are testifying to this as truth, and therefore it is trustworthy. And in verse 12, you get the plurals again, how can y'all believe if I tell you heavenly things? When you don't believe earthly things, how can you all believe if you do this? Jesus goes on to mention uh, the atonement and the healing brought by the cross, referenced in this uh, small picture of Moses and the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. If you're familiar with that story from the Old Testament, um, essentially the, the Israelites in their grumbling and complaining and sin um, and wondering were st- stricken by God with these serpents that were killing them. And, of course, the people looking for salvation from this, and Moses pleads of the Lord, and the Lord provides healing in this bizarre form. He asks that a serpent, a bronze serpent, be made and placed on a pole and held up so that when all look at this bronze serpent, they can be healed. How is Jesus like a a bronze snake on a stick, is the question. He's becoming as a curse, right? He's becoming like the thing that, that brings us death, taking our sin to bring healing for those who are cursed by sin and death, like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross. Jesus gives Nicodemus this expansive, global, multicultural, multi-ethnic vision for salvation that goes far beyond the nation of Israel when he uses the words whoever or the cosmos, the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes. That maybe doesn't strike us as profoundly as it would strike Nicodemus, right? A Pharisee. Whoever believes, just anybody can believe in Jesus. Yes. They can. Whoever believes may have eternal life. Irrespective of language and culture and tribe and nationality and all those things, this is a global, multi-ethnic, expansive vision of God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And he repeats again that God didn't send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's the summary of Jesus' response. There's a lot of parts there. It's the background. But now we turn to the real substance, where God is speaking to us in this text. And first is this. You must be born again. You need the new birth. 
You see, Jesus' claim that the Jewish people must be born again is shocking to Nicodemus. After all, these were God's chosen people. They had his laws, they had his word, they had the traditions, the customs, the values associated with being God's people. But what they were lacking was a new heart, a new life, a new spirit, a new personal and intimate knowledge of God. And you know, this shouldn't have been shocking to Nicodemus. That is precisely what Jesus came to give his old covenant people. This is the new covenant promise. It's found in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. I'll read these passages. You don't have to turn here. But Ezekiel 36, 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Heart transplant. Old covenant people, new covenant promise. Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. and I will remember their sin no more. You see, this is why Jesus says, You are the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. You don't get it. This was always the plan. A new heart, a new spirit, a new life. Rebirth. This was always God's plan. But before we rush to pass judgment on Nicodemus for missing this, I wonder if we might not be closer than we think to his own state. In the church today even. After all, we have his word. We have our theology, our church traditions. We have various ceremonies and rites of passage and spiritual habits and practices that we practice. And maybe some of us have grown up in the church and have known these things all our lives. This is the values and the traditions of being associated with the people of God. But do you have a new heart? Have you experienced new life in Christ? Do you have an intimate and personal relationship with God himself? And more pointedly, Has your faith in Jesus made any discernible difference in your life? In the way you live in the world? Do you love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates? Have you been reborn? You see, if you have not experienced new life in Christ by faith, you are spiritually dead 
and stand condemned before God's court by your sins of unbelief and ungodliness. John 3, same chapter, 36, puts it like this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you haven't been reborn, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't see its goodness, its power, its truth, its beauty. All of the things that were promised in God's kingdom are not accessible to you. You can't see it. You can't enter it. It's impossible. Do you know why? Because dead people can't see. You must be born again. And please do not mistake the allegiance to the propositional truths of Christianity for a new heart. Did you hear that? Don't mistake your allegiance to the propositional truths of Christianity. Don't mistake that for a new heart. It's not enough to believe something right about God. Which is why James 2 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe and shudder. That's not new birth. That's not new life. That is not being born again. Knowledge alone does not bring the new birth. Nicodemus had knowledge. He didn't have new life. Please don't mistake your adherence to our Christian traditions or participation in Christian rites. Don't mistake that for the new birth. Nicodemus was devout. You think he didn't have those things? He was devout. But he was dead in his sins. Baptism, communion, church membership, giving, these are all good and necessary parts of what it means to belong to a local church. None of them will save you. Not a single one. The thief on the cross was promised to be with Jesus that same very day in paradise. What had he done? Nothing. He met Jesus on the cross. He wasn't baptized, he wasn't catechized, he wasn't Christianized. He simply met Jesus on the cross and believed. This is the radical, upside-down message of the new birth. It is deeply humbling. With the Apostle Paul, we must consider that all our religious and spiritual accomplishments, they're worthless in the eyes of God. They merit nothing. You contribute nothing to your salvation, as Jonathan Edwards put it, except the sin that made it necessary. You, churchgoer, must be born again. You, tither, must be born again. You, theology lover, must be born again. You all must be born again. So with Nicodemus, we ask, how is this possible? It seems impossible. And this is the source of the new birth. You must be born again by God's Spirit through repentance and faith in God's Son. You see, the new birth is a spiritual and supernatural work performed by the Spirit of God in the spirit of man. The Holy Spirit is the breath of God that gives life. Just as Genesis 2, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So the Spirit of God recreates you, recreates me, recreates human people by breathing into us the very life of God in a new and fresh way. This is how Jesus says you must be born of the Spirit. 
You see how miraculous this new life is? How breathtakingly stunning this claim is? That God breathes life into our hearts through the indwelling of his own Holy Spirit. You can't manufacture this new birth. You can't imitate it. Like scripture, it is God-breathed. And therefore, it is a product of God. No imitation will suffice. This isn't a self-improvement project. It's not about cleaning up your act. It's not about doing the right things and getting back on track. It is the very life of God breathed into your own. Have you received this living breath of God? Have you been born of the Spirit? In one sense, there's nothing you can do to affect this new birth. Just as a child does not bring itself into being, so it is with our new birth in Christ. It is a work of God that you receive. And yet, there's absolutely a response for you today. There's a response required of us, and we'll see that in a moment. But first, I don't want to gloss over the fact that Jesus says you must be born of water and spirit. Notice that you must be born, again, you must be born of water and spirit. This has been taken throughout the, the years in various Christian traditions. It's been associated with baptism, and, and I think that there's ways that we can see that, but it's not exactly, well, we've already seen, said it's not, it's not baptism that saves you, right? What, so what is this water? Verse 5. The water brings up the images of baptism. It brings up repentance, renewal, cleansing from sin. We saw that in Ezekiel 36, the purification. I will sprinkle clean water on you. But it's more than ritual purification. This is real inward purity. This is possible because God does the cleansing. And a second dimension of that Water is, you think of the baptism of John, a baptism of repentance. The Spirit cleanses us from our sins precisely by means of us repenting from them. God's Spirit is given to convict the world of sin, to convict you of sin, to convict me of sin. Our job is to repent of sin, to turn from it, to despise it, to denounce it, don't cling to it. God brings new life to dead hearts by his spirit through repentance from sin. And this is not alone, but it's accompanied with faith in Christ. We see this in verse 15, verse 16, verse 18, when it says, Whoever believes, you are born again by the spirit as you repent from your sins, are purified by God, and place your trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And folks, this isn't just a one-time decision. This is an ongoing commitment, an ongoing trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the object of it. It is whoever believes in Jesus. Not whoever believes with the most vigor, not whoever believes um, with the most passion, but whoever believes in Jesus belief is placed in Jesus, in his name. There is no other name by which we can be saved. And of course, Jesus is the Son of Man who descends from heaven to earth, who is lifted up on the cross, becoming a curse for you to bring deliverance to you from the curse of sin and death that you have brought on yourself, like the people of Israel in the wilderness. Jesus is the one given by the Father out of love to save all people without distinction 
not without exception, but without distinction, who believe in him, Jew, Gentile, black, white, people from every nation and tribe and tongue who trust in Christ. This is God's plan. And this is God's gift to the world, Jesus. Oh, that we would trust Jesus today. Not merely believe he exists, not merely hold right theology about Jesus, but trust him. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon the promise. Just to know, thus says the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Do you feel that? For gra- oh, God, give us the grace to trust Jesus more. Give me the grace to trust Jesus more. This is the means by which you are saved. This is the source of new birth. You're born again by the Spirit through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus, God's Son, who was given out of love for you to rescue you for, from the curse of sin and death. And we're not only saved from death, but... Folks, we're saved to something else, to new life. And that's the next point, that there is an evidence of this new birth. You must be born again to new life evidenced by good works. You see, in verse 21, the new life is lived in the light of truth before God. Those who walk in darkness don't want to be exposed. They don't want their evil works to be exposed. But those who live who live in this new life, they want it to be known that their works are carried out in God. You see, this is set over against the evil things done in darkness. Those who want their works to be seen, carried out in God, are changed. Their lives are different. Their works are different. And what is the truth? The truth is we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And there's no hiding our sin from a holy God. And Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Like you, like me. And to give them new life by his Spirit through his blood. Now the reality of being born again And living that out is fleshed out elsewhere in Scripture. And I'm just going to go to 1 John 3 because it's the clearest one. 1 John 3, 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. That's a nice rhyme for you. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Here's the important clue. No one born of God, born again, born from above, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. No one born of God, that is, no one born again, born from above, makes a practice of sinning. He cannot keep on sinning. Now, what does this mean? Uh, I hope this isn't despairing for you because you say, I do sin, right? 
I sin. So what does that mean? Am I born again? Well, it doesn't mean that born-again Christians will never sin. It doesn't mean that we only rarely sin. I think we often sin. You still wrestle against the flesh. God's word is more broad than this. We have many more facets of this new life. Think of Romans 7, the wrestling with this, this flesh. But think of Romans 8. No condemnation for those in Christ. We're delivered. Who can deliver us? God in Christ. You still need repentance. You still need to confess your sins to God and other believers as Scripture commands. But what 1 John 3 does mean is that the reigning power of sin is broken in the life of a believer. Your sinful flesh is present, but sin's power over you is no more. If you've been born again, you can have meaningful victories over sin in your life through the Holy Spirit given to you. Don't don't miss that. You can have meaningful victories over sin in your life. You can practice righteousness. The text says it. So it won't suffice for you to excuse habitual sins. Either you are born again or you aren't. Either sin reigns over your life or Christ does. And if you claim that Christ reigns as Lord over your life, then there is no place for excusing sinful patterns of behavior. To be alive to Christ means to be dead to sin. Your new life ought to be qualitatively different than your old life. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it, If anyone is in Christ, what? He is a new creation. The old has, what? Passed away. Behold, the new has come. This new life is different from the old life. That's an objective reality. A fundamental change in your very nature. And on the one hand, the new birth is something that you just receive. You are born again, you don't do the birthing. Fun fact, I call my mom. I've made a practice since I've become a parent over the last few years. On my birthday, and mom, if you're watching this, you'll probably get this phone call tomorrow. Um... I typically call my mom on my birthday, and I, I wish her a happy birthday. Because what did I do, right? I was born. I didn't do any of the birthing. I didn't labor. I didn't deliver myself. Thank you, Mom. If you've, if you've gone through that process, you know what work that is, and you know that that child, they just receive this new life. It's a gift. They do nothing. But there's still a response to this objective reality, isn't there? There's still growth that's required for new life. Our children have to learn, right? They have to learn how to, how to crawl, and they have to learn how to toddle, and, they, and how to walk eventually, and how to run, and they have to learn how to ride a bike, and they have to learn how to feed themselves, and they have to learn how to eventually dress themselves and uh, prepare themselves for life and maybe college and the real world and, guess what, eternity. There's growth. It's required. They're just born, but it doesn't mean that they do nothing. Ephesians four twenty two and following puts it this way. Put off your old self, 
put it off, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Hey, guess what, church? The old has passed away and the new has come. You are not that person anymore. You are a new creation in Christ. It's done. It's gone. God has won the victory over the old self. But put it off. It's both. Do you see this? It's gone. It's dead. It's over. But you still got to put it off. And you still have to put on this new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The new birth creates a new life that is marked by growth in righteousness and holiness. I'm not going to flesh that out in all the particulars, but just consider what your life was before Christ. For some of us, like me, I, I I was young, so I can hardly even imagine what my life was like before Christ, but do you see a difference in your life? Have you been changed fundamentally? Is there any discernible difference in the way you live in the world because of who Jesus is? I hope so. We should talk different than the world. We should live different than the world. We should love different than the world. We should spend our money differently than the way the world does. We should treat our bodies differently than the way the world does. We should treat our world differently than the way the rest of the world does. We ought to be different. We ought to be made in the image and likeness of God and all that that entails. How do you speak to your spouse? How do you speak to your kids? How do you speak to your, your estranged family members or your neighbor? That ought to be different, folks, than the way that it was before Christ. You must be born again. And it needs to look different. That's the evidence. Again, it's not a work that you do to earn the new life. I want to be clear. You don't don't earn it. But you got to grow into it. And there is a hope. There is a hope. A final hope of this new birth. This new life. It's going somewhere, church. You must be born again. It's the final hope of new birth. You must be born again in order to see and enter God's kingdom. You see, entrance into God's kingdom, that's the final hope for those who are born-again believers in Jesus. It's the greatest hope there can be, isn't it? No earthly kingdom can compare because no earthly king can compare. It is the kingdom of God. It is glorious, it is eternal, it is beautiful, it is holy, it is perfect and good and true, it is peace, it is love, it is just, it is everything that our earthly kingdoms fail to be. It's the kingdom of God. On September 26th, 2019, the Reverend Dr. Marvin Fowler, the man who led me to Christ as a young boy, entered into God's kingdom at the age of 83 after 63 years of marriage to his wife, Shirley. 
I spoke with Shirley yesterday on the phone. For the first time in decades, I thanked her for her late husband's role in my new birth. And she told me that she's heard countless stories of people who have been impacted by his life and his ministry. And it warms her heart to hear these things. And she knows that her husband is with Jesus. You see, Pastor Marvin now knows the infinite joys of heaven. He is with Jesus. His hope of a better kingdom was realized. And it can be yours if only you experience the new birth by the Spirit. Don't you want to see God's kingdom? Don't you want to experience the joy of things as they ought to be and not as they shouldn't be? Don't you want to see a world that is free from pain, from suffering, from death and disease? A world in which, (laughs) many of you know, I I went to Tennessee uh, for the funeral of my, my dear Aunt Debbie, 60 years old. 60. Over the course of 11 months, suffering the effects of strokes on her body, withering away. I read to her before she passed, I read to her Romans 8. Hey, guess what? These temporary pains, they're not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory. Creation is groaning. Creation is waiting for redemption. But you know what? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Not a single thing. I still don't want to live in a world where a 60-year-old woman can experience the suffering and the pain that my aunt experienced. That is not as it should be. But she knows the joys of heaven today. She trusted Jesus. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be delivered? Don't you want those words from Romans 8 to ring true for you? That all this isn't just meaningless suffering. There's something greater. There's something better than this. You see, the kingdoms of this world can't provide these joys and comforts. Earthly pleasures will fade. Beauty, riches, accomplishments, they'll slip through your fingers. These things are just a shadow of the reality of God's kingdom. You must be born again to see it. You must be born again to enter it. I pray that this miracle of a second birth would be true of you today. So as I wrap up here, I want to say, for someone who has experienced such a miracle firsthand, I've got to confess that I I don't celebrate this enough. I put it on my calendar. I see it. I, I recognize it every year, but I don't talk about it enough. I get far more excited about a book or a movie or a good restaurant or a piece of music than I ought to. I'm struck by a quote from a sermon C.S. Lewis preached called The Weight of Glory. He says, It seems that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is offered to him 
what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Folks, don't settle for anything less than infinite joy. Don't mistake religious devotion or correct knowledge about God for a new life in Christ. This is a miracle. It's a miracle of God's grace, and it's available to you today. I'm convinced that God is speaking to you today. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you need to hear, but God knows your heart. He knows your need, and he is speaking to you in this very moment. Someone listening to the sound of my voice right now maybe has not ever experienced this new second birth. God's word to you today is turn from your sins. Trust the Savior and be born again by the Spirit of God. Someone else listening right now, you may have made a commitment to Christ some time ago, but you need to hear these words. You are a new creation. Walk in the newness of life. Put off the old self. Put on the new. Maybe you're listening to these words today and you have experienced the second birth and you're striving to live into your new life and you've been doing this for many, many years. And it's been hard. You need to hear these words. You will see and enter the kingdom of God. What a hope that you have today. For all all of us, who've experienced the new birth, I believe God would have us speak more often and with greater passion and conviction of the miracle that has happened in our lives. Do you believe it? Do you believe that faith in Christ is more profound than allegiance and commitment? Faith in Christ is an altered state of reality. It is a supernatural regeneration of your soul. Speak of it like this. Tell others about the hope and the joy and the peace you've found in Christ. And may your life be a living testament to the fact that you've been fundamentally changed. Modern TV drama about the life of Jesus depicts Mary Magdalene's radical conversion and deliverance from demonic possession. And this is what she says. She's, she's asked, what, what happened to you? What's the the deal? How do you go from being a a demon-possessed woman to this person you are today? You know what she says in in this drama? She says, I love this quote. All I know is I was one way, and now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. Is this true of you today? pray it is. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you restore to me and to us the joy of our salvation? These truths we've heard today are simple. We know John 3.16 like the back of our hand, but these are profound spiritual realities. Would you help us to see that there is nothing greater than your kingdom, no greater joy, no greater hope, no greater peace than what you offer us by your spirit through faith in your son. Help us to turn from our sin, Father, and to cling to you today. Make us new. We'd be even as bold as to ask that you might create new life today in someone's heart. 
as they trust in Christ for the very first time. You created this world by speaking the words, let there be. We ask you today that your word would recreate some human heart. Do this for Christ's sake. Do this out out of your great love for all peoples. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.